scripture lesson today is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. This is the period in Israel's history where they have passed through leadership by the judges and have recently um, clamored for a king, and God has given them King Saul. But that is not a relationship that is going well, and God is now choosing David to become king. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you will do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, Samuel looked upon Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Aminadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest, but he is out keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for he is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out. And went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. From time to time, people ask me who my favorite character in the Bible is. And no matter how lengthy or protracted my answer, 
David the king is always on the list. What fascinates me most about David is what novelist Geraldine Brooks has recently labeled the dazzling contradictions in David's life, though the word dazzling may be a bit gracious and forgiving. Indeed, King David is a person with tremendous capacity for good and evil, compassion and cruelty, tenderness and violence. Throughout his contradictions, both beauty and faith are never far away. Consider some of the good in David's life. As the youngest of several sons, he is Cinderella-like, relegated to domestic duty, keeping the sheep. In an obscure village named Bethlehem. Yet God chooses David, even as he is still a child, to become the next king in Israel. And Samuel appoints him to that task. David rises to this choice with a heroic military victory over Goliath of Gath, a giant that fellow villagers are afraid to fight, a giant that David slays with a sling and five smooth stones. David is brought into the court of King Saul, who is still on the throne, where David proves to be the only person in the kingdom who can calm the nerves of the increasingly jealous and mad ruler by playing the sweetest music on a small harp known as a lyre. This talent eventually wins David the moniker of Sweet Psalmist of Israel. When Saul descends into complete madness and loses his life, David formally becomes king and leads the nation in brilliant military victories, consolidation of tribes, and establishment of Jerusalem as the political and religious capital of the land. Yet darkness and evil come forth from David's life as well. At the very moment his troops are giving their lives on the battlefield, David remains behind in the castle and violates a woman named Bathsheba, the wife of one of his elite corps of fighters. When she sends word to David that she is pregnant, he orders her husband Uriah back from the battlefront and attempts to trick Uriah into sleeping with his wife so that the child born will assume to be Uriah's. But when Uriah refuses the privileges of marriage while his fellow soldiers are still in battle, David sends Uriah back to the battlefront with an order to the commanding officer that locates the troops in such a way that Uriah will be killed. Yet there still remains good in David. When Nathan the prophet confronts him about his crimes, he responds, I have sinned. When the child born to Bathsheba falls ill, David intercedes with God for the life of the child. And when, as predicted, the child dies, David faces that reality head on. When violence enters David's household as his sons break into faction and forms and form troops with arms to go against David and to go against one another. David makes certain that Mephibosheth, 
one of Saul's grandsons whom the text describes as crippled in the feet, still invited to take every evening meal seated at the king's table. Geraldine Brooks remarks that despite having left little trace outside the pages of the Bible, David must have existed, for no people would invent such a flawed character as a national hero. It is the combination of vain and blessing, good and ill, within David that leads me never to stop reading or pondering his lengthy and fallen life. In the book of Psalms, 73 of the 150 psalms are labeled a psalm of David. Some David likely wrote. Some may have been written in his name, in his honor, or in his memory. Among the warmest and most memorable psalms of David is Psalm 23, which so many of us can recite by heart. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. At what point in his deeply contradictory life might David have written this psalm? When might he have taken pen and put it to parchment? Was it when he was chosen by God over all his brothers and anointed by Samuel? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Was it when he slew Goliath, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me? Was it when he restored the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, my cup runneth over? Was it when he lost an infant born to Bathsheba? Or when he received word that his favored son Absalom had indeed been killed in battle? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear David composed the psalm on his deathbed, dictating it to Nathan and Bathsheba, who were with him through all of his adult life, completing his poetry in a whisper, and then giving up his spirit to God, surely goodness shall follow me all days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In a recent Sunday evening Old Testament class, I asked the 40 or so participants to share with the class what their favorite phrase was from the 23rd Psalm. Nearly everyone had a favorite phrase, and nearly all the phrases within the psalm were selected. Hardly anyone had the same favorite phrase. This deeply flawed human being named David, this shepherd and king and husband and soldier and military leader and commander-in-chief and ruler and songwriter and lyre player, penned words of comfort that have never gone out. 
lifestyle, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Given these glaring contradictions between the various Davids we come to know through Scripture, what do we learn about ourselves by looking at him? What do we learn from this flawed king whose son, Christ, is called? And from the song he wrote, which warms our hearts whenever we hear it. What do we make of the God who lies behind both David and his song? In our text for today, we are introduced to David at the point in which God chooses him as a mere child to become king, and in which Samuel anoints him to the office that he will occupy a bit later. I cannot help but marvel at what a risk God takes to invest God's own presence and work in the world to one who will prove to be such a flawed human being. It is truly a risk on the part of God for God to attach himself to this boy, Shepherd David. But over the years, as I have reflected on this choice of David, I've come to realize that given the flawed figure that each one of us is like David, given the dazzling contradictions that comprise the lives of every person who walks into this sanctuary and takes a place in the pews, of every person who sits in this choir loft or sits in this chancel, of every person that dares to stand behind this table or behind this pulpit, given the dazzling contradictions of our lives, for God to choose any one of us individually or for God to choose all of us collectively to be the bearers of his likeness and image in the world represents nothing short of an enormous risk on the part of God. Why would an all-powerful and all-knowing God invest God's very self in a person like David? Or for that matter, in a person like Jacob or Solomon or Esther or Paul or Timothy or Phoebe or Matthew or Mark or Luke or John or you and me? Why would God take such a risk? The answer, I believe, lies in the words God uses in instructing Samuel to anoint David as king. God says to Samuel, The Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, scholars tell us that this last phrase can be translated. The Lord looks into the heart, or the Lord looks from the heart. The first implies that in choosing David, in choosing us, God sees something beautiful and wonderful and of great potential in our hearts that others may not always see, including ourselves. The second implies that in choosing us, God looks into God's own heart and sees, remembers the future that God intends for all of creation and is bold enough to trust God's 
own power to include us as being bearers and carriers of that future. Together, these two translations say that despite who we have been as individuals and who we have been as a human race, God chooses us because God entrusts us with the future and he entrusts the future to us. God chooses us because he believes in the future. God is committed to the future. God entrusts us to bear his image and likeness into the future. God places his faith in us. God risks investing in us because God knows who we can truly be. What unfathomable beings we can truly become. What unfathomable things we can truly do in God's image. We are a risk on the part of God, but a risk God takes, a risk that leads our cup to run it over. Some of you all know that my two children, now fully grown, did not come into my life until they were five and seven when I married their mother. And then several years later, adopted them. Among the things this means is that I have never directly experienced for more than a few minutes at a time life with an infant or a toddler or a preschooler. I've never changed a diaper. <laughs> never intend to. The interactions that I've had with the youngest of children has primarily been through baptisms that I have conducted, in which my inexperience as how Terry and Holy Children is on regular display before the congregation at this holy moment of sacrament. Except for today, she really was good. <laughs> But at times, I have been in the presence of a preschooler whose innate charisma has given me a glimpse of what being the parent of a young child must be at its best. Last weekend, not, not, this, not last night, but last weekend, the wedding last night was good too, but this is a story from the week before. Last weekend, I conducted a wedding in which prior to the rehearsal here in the sanctuary, a boy came up to me and said, My name is Nathan. I am four. I am the door greeter in the bulletin hander album. <laughs> Nathan had dark hair, dark round eyes, and he, had, he wore round hipster glasses that were orange and green and yellow. His parents laid later told me that Nathan has difficulty sitting still by then I had noticed. <laughs> now at the reception following the wedding, when Nathan was introduced as part of the wedding party, he did a little Michael Jackson maneuver on the dance floor. And when the bride and groom danced their first dance, he perched himself at the edge of the dance floor in rapt attention, his shirt tail out, 
and his shoes walked abandoned. And the night before the rehearsal dinner at Carmine's Italian restaurant in downtown, which I'm sure many of you all have, have experienced, they served the food family style. We were in a private dining room, but they served the food family style, as I think they do in, in all of their serving. When the waiters brought out a large platter of tiramisu for dessert, Nathan was seated next to me. He perused the table for a serving piece, and he found one. And then he perused the table for a dessert plate, which had not yet been brought out. But in his perusing, he spotted the saucer under my coffee cup. <laughs> he lifted the cup and took the saucer out and then piled it high with the luscious dessert. His parents, who were sitting in another part of the room, noticed this, and they came over and made an apology for Nathan, something of which I think they probably do from time to time. <laughs> but I said, you know, I rarely take my coffee out of a cup that's on a saucer. It's just fine. I could tell that they seemed to have mastered, at least for the moment, the art of being Nathan's parent. Now the next day, this was the rehearsal dinner, the next day I stood in this chancel and watched Nathan's aunt walk down the aisle to join the man she was marrying. And I was reminded that in the privileged sectors of society in which most of us live, the decision to marry is usually a choice. And I was reminded that for the most part, the decision to seek to have a child or adopt a child is usually a choice. When we choose to marry or bring a child into our lives, we are taking a risk. A risk of which most of us are aware, at least on a surface level. But we are also, when we make this choice, acting out of a fundamental sense of trust. Trust that the earth will remain. Trust that the cosmos will continue. Trust that the future holds promise. For most of us, as flawed as we know ourselves to be and as depressing sometimes as we know the world to be. A decision to marry or to have a child involves a basic trust in life. And if we are religious, a basic trust in the God who creates life and places us within its benefits and its beauty. I believe God's choice of David lies within the same category. God did not have to act in creation. God did not have to provide an ark by which a remnant of the human race would continue after his desire to start over. God did not have to call Abraham and Sarah after the fiasco of the Tower of Babel. And God did not have to choose David to be king and instruct Samuel to anoint him to that high office. 
In addition, God could have stopped his choice of the first king born in Bethlehem. But God didn't stop there. All of this shows that God is so committed to the future and that the future will be sufficiently bright that God is willing to attach himself to us. To David the king, to Nathan the prophet, to Nathan the child. So that we will all be bearers of God's image into the future that God provides. Now being on the receiving end of this risk and choice, as we are, is a challenge. But it is a challenge to which we, in God's image, can rise. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. He leads us in right paths. Prepared a table for us, even in the presence of those with whom we have confidence. He anoints our head with oil. Our cup.